Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161v39, Culture of the 20th Century, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 138, January the 3rd, 1987. This afternoon, Otto Scott and I are going to deal with the culture of our times, of the 20th century. And our concern is specifically with what is happening, how we can describe the philosophy, and what its direction is. Now, by way of introduction, I'd like to call attention to certain aspects of our culture that can be summed up in one word, existentialism. I'm going to read a definition of existential philosophy from the Dictionary of Philosophy. I quote, Existential philosophy determines the worth of knowledge not in relation to truth, but according to its biological value contained in the pure data of consciousness, when unaffected by emotions, volitions, and social prejudices." Unquote. As the definition goes on, it makes clear that words are not used in relationship to truth, to right or wrong, to good or evil, but with reference to man's psychology and biology, so that our world and life view is to be determined by the biology of our being without reference to anything we have learned that comes from outside of ourselves, from our culture from our parents, our schools, and especially our churches. Now, existential philosophy, which began with uh, Kieran, uh, Soren Kierkegaard and reached its high point in Jean-Paul Sartre, who died a few years ago, is no longer the governing force in philosophy because it has passed into the stream of culture and become the air we breathe. No one calls himself an existentialist now. We are at the point where, to some degree, everyone is an existentialist. We saw the expression of it in the uh, student revolution of a few years ago, in the hippies, in the common statement, do your own thing, and uh, I want to be me, and a number of other similar affirmations. We see it all around us. We see it in politics. A friend of mine, a state senator, has remarked that voters have a short memory. It does not exceed 90 days, so that 
whatever a candidate for office has done, unless it has been done very recently, in most cases the voters discount it. They have a short memory and a short vision of the future. One of the marks of savages, the people we call savages, tribes that are very backward socially, culturally, religiously, is their limited time span. Many of them cannot count above the fingers of their two hands, beyond the number ten. Many of them have even more limited apprehension of numbers. The Hivaros of uh, South America are said to be unable to count beyond three. One, two, and many is their concept. The time span of many such peoples the world over is limited as far as the future is concerned. And most of the past drops out except to coalesce as a kind of timeless thing. Thirty days in the future is about all that some cultures can think. Now, modern man is becoming the same. And the results for our culture are deadly. So this is why we are concerned with existentialism. The word may sound a bit technical, but we're dealing with the realities of the world around us. Otto, do you want to make some comments at this point? Well, yes. The existentialism of Sartre is what interested me when you mentioned the topic. Now, I have a book here called Paris in the Third Reich. The History of the German Occupation, 1940 to 1944. And in one page here that talks about Cocteau, the favorite of the gay community, well-known as an artistic producer and playwright and so forth, who astonished the German troops by appearing at the beauty shop to get his hair done and who had a play on the boards under the Nazis and who was favored by the Nazis because of his influence, I suppose, in the French community. One of his protégés was Genet, the so-called novelist who wrote about his homosexuality and thievery in general. And here we come on to Jean-Paul Sartre, who his successes during the occupation, says the book, were to mold the coming generations in his image. Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, the goddess of the feminist movement, got their rise into international celebrity under the Nazis. And so, for that matter, did Camus, the Algerian novelist, in his start. Now, we have here something rather unusual, but something that's, I think, typical of our time. We have very well-known and famous celebrities whose behavior has been beneath contempt, 
and who are forgiven that behavior for no reason that I can see because the, well, let me put it another way, their behavior is forgiven because they expressed opinions that fit what Hegel called the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age was that you attain virtue by expressing the right opinions and that gives you the privilege of behaving personally in any way you like. All you have to do is say the right thing. Now this is, of course, this is not even hypocrisy. This is an actual dichotomy between behavior and opinion. Men are judged then by the opinions that they hold or express and not by their behavior. We've seen this in the case of Martin Luther King, but in terms of existentialism, I think it's most remarkable in the case of Sartre, because Sartre was held aloft as the exemplar for the entire post-World War II generation. And so, for that matter, was Simone de Beauvoir for the women. Yes, uh, Nazi Germany had a great deal of affinity to existentialism. It is interesting, you mentioned Genet. Uh, what uh, Sartre had to say about Genet, he wrote a very voluminous, long-winded book about Genet entitled Saint Genet. Now, Genet was a pickpocket, he was a professional male prostitute. He was quite a number of things. When he was in prison, he began to read and to think about himself, and he thought, well, if there is no God, and I do not believe there is, he said, and if there is no good and evil, and if we are beyond good and evil, I am as good as anyone else. And why should I not be as much a saint as any man? Why should I be in prison? And he began to write expressing his newfound faith. Immediately, the intellectuals and the writers of France petitioned for his release. And to the everlasting discredit of General de Gaulle, he released Genet. And Genet began to write uh, and to produce some pornographic films, all of which were hailed as great works of art, precisely because he did things evil and called them equal with good. In fact, the new good. Because, as Camus said, because there is no God, and because what God chooses is good, we must choose evil. It must be our way of life. And Genet self-consciously chose evil. Now, this temper, of course, is in evidence throughout the world. A few years ago, a film director, Polanski, husband of Sharon Tate, who was murdered by the Manson crowd, was charged with child molestation and fled the country. And immediately he was lionized by uh, the film community. And a 
film Nobody Remembers, which he produced, had, I believe, three Oscar nominations or awards. Now, this is typical of our time. All you have to do to qualify for high place, to be regarded as an intellectual or an artist, is to display a contempt for all values, to insist that none exist, that in fact the affirmation of evil is necessary to intellectual respectability. That's why abortion is popular. That's why especially homosexuality is popular. To reject God, you have to reject what is good. You have to choose evil as your way, as your good. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Polanski. Polanski was indicted for having sex with a 13-year-old girl. That was the charge, and obviously he, he admitted that that was a true charge. It's interesting to reflect that the girl's mother saw nothing wrong. Yes. Had sent her to Polanski's home to engage in a party and so forth. Now, Hollywood did take Polanski as a matter of defiance. They nominated his movie, I don't recall the name of it either, for 18 Oscars. It received oh, three. Oh, 18. 18. Mm -hmm. It received three. Simply to put it in everybody's eye and to say, this is one of ours, and he's a great artist, and the fact that he fled the country under this particular charge is not going to sway our judgment of him. And that whole thing reminds me of a journalist who went down through some of the Sunbelt states, as a matter of fact, uh, investigating the whole business of selling daughters to filmmakers and some of the propositions that he and inducements that the parents had offered the producers in this particular excursion were hair-raising. There was absolutely no bounds, either on the part of the daughters or their parents. But I take this thing, you, you started the discussion with Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard I'm not as familiar with as you are. To me, it, from the American viewpoint, it always stems from Emerson. Emerson and his reading of Hinduism, which equates good and evil as being equal, so that you can go to nirvana either through the path of evil or the path of good. And Hemingway, uh, rather, Emerson carried on about being beyond good and evil. He talked about the higher law, which we're again hearing about, by the way, in the race relations disorders of New York City. Some of the black spokesmen who are very indignant over the killing of a black man by a white band in the Queens are talking about using the higher law to take vengeance upon anyone who is standing around. Well, we can trace from Emerson to Nietzsche, and Nietzsche's book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, and Beyond Good and Evil, and so forth. 
we can go from Nietzsche then, we can go to the arguments of the Marxists and the Nazis that anything in a good cause is good, no matter how evil it might seem to be or how evil it might be. So that evil and good are equated in a partnership. And then, of course, we get to the Third Reich and to Sartre and to Beauvoir and the whole bunch. Now, nobody is talking about how Sartre died, what his last years were like, his drunkenness, his incontinence, and his whole falling apart. Simon Beauvoir, who was associated with him for so many years, actually sat down and wrote in detail about his collapse, simply to make money, and also to perpetuate the idea of being in the public eye. So you have a third element here as far as I'm concerned, and that is anything to achieve a presence in the world of propaganda. Here we are doing everything because of it will elevate the individual into public attention. Yes. And that's an element that previous generations were unaware of, excepting, of course, on the very high level, the court, the army, places like that, because only the, only the rulers and the soldiers could achieve fame, but uh, lasting fame. But now, through the vehicles of propaganda, all kinds of creeps can get up and get attention. Yes, you mentioned Emerson, and I'm very glad you did, because while Soren Kierkegaard began the existentialist philosophy, the primary influence and the primary source of existentialism in the United States and probably England as well was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, Emerson did have a powerful influence in Europe, uh, so that uh, Nietzsche, for example, and others reflect very strongly the influence of Emerson. It was after World War II that uh, the influence of Kierkegaard began to prevail in this country, merging with that of Emerson. Although prior to World War II in the 30s, the influence of Kierkegaard was very strong in American seminaries. Now, the tragic fact is how deeply both sources, Kierkegaard and Emerson, but especially Kierkegaard, have influenced seminaries. And uh, both Catholic and Protestant seminaries for a long time have been subject to these influences. All the mainline Protestant churches are radically influenced. The present Pope, John Paul II, has a background as an existentialist philosopher. And this explains a great deal of what uh, he has been doing of late especially. So that one of the reasons why the churches have declined is precisely this existentialist temperament. Karl Barth, the whole of the neo-orthodox movement within the churches, again, very heavily Kierkegaardian 
existentialist in orientation. So you have many people in the church who preach a seeming orthodoxy. They use all the right language. They talk about the incarnation and the resurrection and the miracles. But it is not in real history. It is in supra-history, in a psychological world, so that they have made everything existential. And the results have been that uh, there's a form of godliness, but the power is lacking. Some evangelical seminaries are wide open now and have been for some time to existentialist thinking. I won't mention any names, although one or two quite are quite prominent, because I couldn't cover all of them, and to be fair, I would have to name the existentialists in all the evangelical seminaries. But very definitely, they have a toehold, just as liberation theology does, which is an aspect of the same faith, which says, what we want here and now is the essence of the truth. What my biology demands, that is the real. Well, we get into some very interesting secular manifestations because the general community doesn't know the origin of these ideas. It simply accepts prevailing ideas as though they come out of no place. Uh, they just are given. I hate that phrase, but that's what's used mm -hmm. now. And if we apply it in the general community, it means that anything goes so long as it doesn't get you into trouble. Now, Polanski is the subject of an article, a recent article in Commentary Magazine, which is the reason that I was able to remember the number of Oscar nominations. There was somebody wrote an article called The Rise and Fall of Roman Polanski in which they pointed out that after he fled to Europe, he began to lose a certain amount of esteem in Europe, the Europeans being much more pragmatic than the Americans, less, I'd say, uh, awfully materialistic in Europe. The question of earning a living in Europe is a vital thing. They don't have uh, all the ease that we have here in getting by. So when Polanski lost the great American market, then he became less important as a movie director and producer. There was less commercial value to him. And to, uh, having made a series of dud films not picked up by Hollywood, he's, uh, he's now considered a has-been. Consequently, you might say that in the old term, this would be the rewards of sin, but that isn't so. It's not because of what he did or what he said, but simply because of his market value, totally divorced from any ethical considerations. All Europe is living in terms of its market value at this moment. It's living off 
international commerce that's living off the American market to a very great extent. It's living off the expense of the American taxpayer. And it is not mounting any resistance to the Soviets, nor will it, if the Soviets ever move, because I think two wars have pretty well sapped the will of the Europeans to fight anymore. So we come then, when we look at the great seabed of the West, at the end of the road of existentialism, where does it lead? It leads, of course, to the idea that Sartre and de Beauvoir epitomize so well in their own lives anything to get by. Yes. One of the things that uh, I think reveals what existentialism has done for us, most television programs manifest. If you live for the moment, if the moment alone is real, as existentialism maintains, then the essence of a story is continual sensations. Now, in my childhood, one of the things that was very commonplace both in my home when my father would read to us by the hour at times and at school when if a class did well and it was an impetus to do our work promptly the teacher would devote a sizable portion of the class to reading and it was a delight. Well, the older writers very commonly began with two, three pages of description. Those are now uh, left out in abridged editions for students. But then we listened to them with a relish. They evoked a picture of the past. They set the stage. The point was not the momentary feeling or sensation. But if you pick up a novel today, and especially if you pick up a detective story, it's all action, statements, the moment and you're supposed to respond instantly to everything. There is no patient building up so that you have a sense of the past, present, and future. They used to say that uh, Chinese food, and probably they uh, still say it, uh, could fill you up and leave you hungry again within an hour. Well, you can read and enjoy some of these modern uh, novels and detective stories, the best of them. And the next day you have trouble remembering what the sequence of action was and what the plot was because it is so totally geared to the moment that there's no real sense of continuity and of life. Life has a past, present, and future. This existentialism does not have and it reflects itself in modern art. Well, sensationalism, of course. Sensations can never even be recalled. 
there isn't any way that you can ever recall a moment of surprise. Uh, there isn't any way that you can recall a moment of anger. You look back and say, well, yes, I remember that that made me angry at the time. But you look back, you're no longer angry about it. It's part of the past. The, the business of technique in writing, of course, which you bring up, is partly because we've moved into a visual age. And I remember that uh, one of the big agents in New York whom I talked to about a a possible book, decided that I wasn't the man to write that particular book because, he said, when I read your writing, Otto, I don't see pictures. Well, of course, there are some things which I write which are not visual. They're intellectual. So what he was saying was that unless we see pictures, there isn't any point in in, uh, promoting the book. This is for a television-oriented audience. Mm-hmm. And television, as you know, interrupted every 12 minutes or so. You have a very short attention span. So the book is written in brief episodes, bursts of activity. Yes. And it reminds me of the radio show hosts that I've debated with in recent periods. They're always very afraid that I'm going to bore the audience, so they interrupt me before I can complete my reply to a question. It never occurs to them that they might bore the audience. They talk for quite a while. Yes. uh, I'd uh, add to what you said, Otto, that it is a sensational uh, visual image they want because the older novelists drew a picture and words, two, three pages. But it was a picture to set a stage. Now, it has to be visual shock, continual visual shock, not the development of a setting. That's why I think landscape painting is uh, not too popular today. It involves a picture which is an enduring one, which gives you uh, something that uh, lingers with you. You can feel yourself in the picture. It lingers, and that is no longer valid. Well, that comment carries me into another area. When we were children, we lived in terms of sensation. And we lived in the present. If you recall, a day lasted as long as a week seems to last today. Yes. Uh, It was an endless thing. If it was going to be this afternoon, it was a great disappointment because that was a long way off. Mm -hmm. And if something happened in the afternoon you'd been reprimanded about in the morning, you said, but that was in the morning. (laughs) Because that was a long way in the past. So everything was in the present. And what we're talking about is a return to childhood. Yes. A sponsored return to childhood by the culture. Mm-hmm. And this fits into the treatment of citizens as children by the government, mm-hmm. who have to be monitored around the clock for their own good and protection. Very good. So you see how the culture fits into the purposes of our governors. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'd like to read a few things from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's 
classic work, Being and Nothingness. Uh, first, this uh, sentence. The only being which can be called free is the being which annihilates its being. Moreover, we know that annihilation is lack of being and cannot be otherwise. Freedom is precisely the being which makes itself a lack of being. In other words, you live only in the moment. You're not a being. You're not something that has an existence apart from the moment. So, this is the philosophical defense of total childishness. Again, he says, man makes himself man, that is an existentialist, in order to be God. Moreover, he says, the principal result of existential psychoanalysis must be to make us repudiate the spirit of seriousness. Permanent child, uh, childishness, as you said. To repudiate the spirit of seriousness. To deny that there's a good and evil. To live in terms of the pleasure principle for the moment. Now, how far Sartre carries this comes out vividly. And I'm reading from the last portion of his book, the chapter entitled Conclusion. Uh, he says, Thus it amounts to the same thing, whether one gets drunk alone or is a leader of nations. If one of these activities takes precedence over the other, this will not be because of its real goal, but because of the degree of consciousness which it possesses of its ideal goal. And in this case, it will be the quietism of the solitary drunkard which will take precedence over the vain agitation of the leader of nations, unquote. In other words, the town drunk is a better existentialist than the leader of nations because the leader of nations is still governed by things outside of himself. But the town drunk is only thinking of getting drunk. So, this is a call for world suicide for the end of life. Nothing is worth anything. So you repudiate the spirit of seriousness. You adopt permanent childishness. And you say as the conclusion of your philosophy that it is better to be the village drunk than the head of state. Well, the idea that what happens inside yourself is the most important event in the world, which is really what we're talking about. It marks every inmate of every lunatic asylum in the world. Mm -hmm. The psychiatrists call it involutional melancholia because it leads to melancholia and then the individual is almost uh, beyond being evoked back into the world because his entire world becomes himself. Now, I noticed this years ago. I had a, a job for a brief period of time in a liquor store on the edge of Skid Row. And I at first felt very sorry for these fellows, these winos who would come in. And I'd try to talk to them, feel, sound them out, find out how they got into that situation, and so forth. 
And they turned to the most frightful bores I ever had t- tried to talk to in my life because they could only talk about themselves. They were only interested in themselves. The world that was moving around them was a totally beyond their ken. They had no interest in politics or in anything. And if you go about in our culture today, I think we are piling up more bores by the square mile than we've ever had at any period in our history. People who will only, they'll sit next to me on an airplane and they'll tell me all about themselves. Mm -hmm. They haven't a question in the world. They're only interested in what's happening to them, where they are in their job, what their family is doing, what their children are doing in school. And finally, uh, they get back to, well, who do you think is going to win the next ball game? Mm -hmm. Now, this is appalling. This is like a national lobotomy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, that reminds me of something which we all do, Otto, which reveals the fact that existentialism has infected all of us to some degree. It annoys me whenever I do it. But it is a characteristic of this century that we so often begin our comments and our observations by saying, I think, as though that were the key, as though that were the most important thing under the sun, what I think. And not, well... As a Christian, this is what I should believe. Or as an American, or as an Englishman, or a German, this is what we uh, feel on this issue. This business of what I think as being the ultimate statement to make has become predominant in this century. It's a very new thing but it manifests the fact of practical existentialism among all of us. And what is aggravating is that uh, so many people who can't think sensibly or talk sensibly still feel that the answer to everything in the Bible or everything in... uh, any important study or science or art is, well, I think so-and-so. It's the ultimate in egoism, which is what existentialism is. It reduces the world to the individual and to his feelings and experiences. So we all go around saying, well, I think so-and-so. Problem, problem with that is that most of the people who tell me they think about something have not thought about it. <laughs> yes. What they're doing is uh, what D.H. Lawrence, you remember, years ago went to Sardinia with his girlfriend at a time when the English pound was very strong and the French, uh, the Italian lira rather, was very weak. So, of course, the whole trip was very cheap for them. But since they were on short money anyway, they traveled by bus. And they talked to a lot of Italians, and the Italians were all pretty angry about the pound and lira differential and would 
say to them, why is your pound worth more than our lira? Why is your money worth more than our money? As though they were responsible for this yes. turn of affairs. And Lawrence said in a phrase I have never forgotten, he said what they were doing, of course, he said they were chewing up newspaper editorials and spitting them at me. <laughs> And that epitomizes so well, it summarizes so well, so many of the I think people that I run into, because they do not think. They take their opinions from the press, from the television, from the radio, and that suffices. Now, there was a time when it did not suffice. You could not maintain yourself in adult company if all you did was echo what the man in the street was saying. You had to come forward with a considered opinion or you were expected to shut up. Yes. And there was a time earlier, and I've read this in many accounts, autobiographies of bygone years and journals, when people, when something important came up, asked the local pastor or the local judge, or some dignitary. Uh, what do you know about this? And then they reflected on that. Now they shoot off their mouth immediately. Well, that's interesting. I asked my father, that he was getting elderly, and I was staying with him, how things were for him, generally speaking, he said, all right, but he said, I'm running out of older men. And he said, I miss them. He said, they used to tell me uh, precedence. Uh, when I had an idea, would go to an older man, he'd tell me, well, we tried that, and we had this result, and so forth. Now, he said, uh, there are very few left. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't have as many places to go to advice as I used to go. Mm -hmm. But is a very interesting thing because I hadn't realized until you mentioned it how going to an older man for advice was once commonplace and it no longer is well look at the people who are invited to give opinions on television or radio first of all school teachers uh, they call them professors, but they're school teachers. Mm -hmm. As school teachers, of course, are experts on everything in the United States. And next to school teachers, uh, what some of my seamen friends used to call shrinks. <laughs> Go to the shrink, ask the shrink. And why a medical education empowers anybody to be able to discuss national affairs, I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, we have these strange sort of pseudo-experts on almost every side. Recently, I read in an, an article by a young American journalist who spent a couple of years in England and came back shell-shocked because, he said, he realized that in the United States, knowledge is segregated into academic enclaves, whereas the writers in Great Britain have as an audience an entire educated class. Now, this is a very, 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 very grave national deficiency on our part. We have people who are specialists, they have majored in this or that, and in almost every other respect they are illiterate. And they stay illiterate. I heard a man say once something very interesting. He said he went back to the church 
He, he began to take his religion seriously after he was in his 50s. And he realized, he said, that he had stopped thinking about religious matters when he was about 14. So from the time he was 14 till the time he was 50, he had the opinions of a 14-year-old boy on some of the largest issues and questions of all time. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he was mature that he had sense enough to go back and to start to think and to attend church and to talk to the pastor and so forth and to get involved in the subject. But we have millions of 14-year-olds in various very important areas walking around. And contrary to their prototypes in previous generations, this particular group today is quite proud of itself. It feels no sense of deficiency. Mm -hmm. Now, is this existentialism in a cultural sense? Are these people living from sensation to sensation? Are they living only to the idea that they're as good as the next fellow? When I got that question, I remember a fellow said to me once, I, I was raised to believe I was as good as anybody else, weren't you? And I said, no, we were raised to believe that we were better than some and not as good as others. Your comment about the academic community reminds me of uh, a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley who in the course of his lecture went on at great length about the uh, platonic philosophy that was basic to the Bible from page one and he cited the fact that even on page one of the Bible a Greek word was used because the book of Genesis began with the words in the beginning was the word or logos and the word was God and the word was with God I went up after the class and told this professor, one of the most distinguished men in American philosophy, that uh, his entire point was premised on an error, that what he had cited was from the beginning of John's Gospel, not the book of Genesis. And it did not have a Greek meaning just because the language used was Greek. He dismissed uh, with a wave of his hand as he went off the whole matter of having transposed what was in John to Genesis and having um, generalized about the Bible in terms of his illusion as an irrelevant point. Now, things are irrelevant if what counts is not an objective truth. And once you deny God, objective truth disappears. So you don't have to be a formal existentialist. This man was a pragmatist. Truth still is not important. And when truth goes, sooner or later, everything goes. Well, it's also indissoluble. 
truth, a partial truth, is an untruth. A partial truth is not the truth. But here we get into something entirely different. I have a book at home, which I bought a number of years ago, called The Book of Great Conversations. Oh, yes. And I have that have also. You, you have it. And uh, I've, I've looked through it. I haven't, can't say that I've read it, but I've looked through it. And the thing that struck me immediately was that we do know, we have no conversations on that level anymore. There are no such conversations, so far as I know, held anywhere in the United States. I'll take exception to that, Otto. Some of our staff breakfasts are on a better level than what I read in that book. Well, all right. Uh, thanks that's, to you, to a great measure. Well, that's true. We do have good conversations at our <laughs> breakfast. That's true. It's the only place that I know of. <laughs> Generally, the conversation boils down to specifics. If it's in a professional level, it's what are we going to do about what. And if it's on a social level, well, then, of course, we all have to agree with one another. Otherwise, the hostess has uh, fainting fits. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go back to something now that I have cited on other occasions because I think it's so relevant, especially in view of the fact that you said that existentialism, the modern temper, leads to childishness and to a form of insanity. Turning again to Theodore Shank's book, American Alternative Theater, I'd like to quote the statement by a contemporary dramatist. Life, revolution, and theater are three words for the same thing. In other words, life is theater, and theater is life. And in terms of that, another statement by still another person, and I quote, acting is not make-believe, but living exquisitely in the moment, unquote. Now that's pure existentialism, living in the moment. And that's why acting is not make-believe. The people sitting out there are not living in the moment the way the actors are. So they are not real. The real people are the actors. And you turn the whole world into actors if they're going to be real people. And the result is total insanity a politics of insanity. How else can you say, other than this existentialist abandonment of reality, governs Congress, where the threat in Cuba, and especially Nicaragua, is something they won't face up to. The presence of the KGB, the presence of the GRU in Washington, their influence, their goings and comings, they're totally oblivious because they're in the theater of American television and the newspapers. The theater of politics. Yes. Now, the audience, of course, is the people. The camera, what passes for the camera, is the media. Yes. Now, the media is portraying our political situation, our political scene, as a form of theater in which living people are being used as actors and our destinies are involved. Now, you talk about diversions. 
using politics as a diversion. The great diversion right now, of course, is to reduce the president to a civil servant responsible to Congress, having to report to Congress and have the, have the re approval of Congress before he functions on an international level. In the meantime, Gorbachev is coming to the Western Hemisphere. Gorbachev has already lined up a visit to Havana, a visit to Mexico City, and a visit to Buenos Aires. The visit to Argentina was probably going to involve a promise that they will someday get the Falcons back if they give the Soviets a naval base. The Soviets have already received fishing rights off the coast of Argentina. They have a very large hold in Peru. They have a very large hold in Bolivia. They are, they have the complicity of our State Department in getting back control of Chile. They have an ongoing revolution in Colombia, which is over 25 years old. They have made inroads in Uruguay to the point where the Tupamaros, the terrorists there, have revived. They are in Nicaragua. They are pressing El Salvador into a state of complete incoherence. They are on the verge of moving against Honduras, Costa Rica. And, of course, Gorbachev is going to talk to De La Madrid about picking up all the things that he needs from the Kremlin and let him forget about what he owes to the American bankers. In the face of this, now our forebears saw French and Spanish uniforms in Mexico. We will see Soviet uniforms in Mexico. So far, the networks and the media have not even bothered to inform the American people of Gorbachev's tour, mm -hmm. which is unprecedented. Yes. They are turning the Western Hemisphere into a replica of Africa and a replica of what the pre-World War II Balkans looked like. And here we sit, intent upon destroying another president. Now, this is existentialism, and it reminds me, we have to go back to Sartre, it reminds me of Sartre's play, No Exit. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Yes. No Exit. That was what he was leading his followers for. You are trapped. This is it. This is the end. And it's all right. Yes. Everyone living in his own corner of hell, talking to himself, wondering if the exit door was open, but nobody trying it, in an endless monologue. That's right. That's, you get Samuel Beckett from that, yes. waiting for Godot. And there wasn't an aspect of life that Sartre's touch didn't try to wither. He took a love affair and he turned it into a story about the lovers being condemned to meet again in the same hotel room ad infinitum forever. It was it, it, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. The effort that he made to destroy joy That's a good statement, because whether it is in uh, everyday television or in a philosopher like Sartre, 
It is an everyday effort to destroy joy. Because having denied God, they cannot say that man can be happy, that there can be peace and joy in the world. They have to pollute and destroy everything. It's a strange business. Yes. Well, our time is drawing to a close. Are there... Uh, we have a few minutes. Are there any concluding uh, statements or summaries? Well, this is how the pagan world died. The pagan world with its endless cycles. Remember, everything was going to recur. Yes. So everything that you were going through was going to recur and recur endlessly. As the seasons rotated around one another and the planets around the earth, so man's life was going to repeat ad infinitum forever. And there was no exit, and there was no home. Mm -hmm. And this is what Christianity swept to one side. And as the faith declined, and I'm not sure that the faith declined, excepting that those who were anti-faith got hold of the instruments of communication and have been trying to convince us that the faith declined. I think if we took a head count, if it was possible, we would find that the faith is flourishing here, for instance, as never before. But the instruments of communication are preaching paganism in the name of modern philosophy. Yes. Uh, pagan thinking, Greek and Roman, was never any good. But uh, the so-called great dramatists and writers were men who had one message that uh, life is terrible and that everything works to frustrate man and all things work together for evil in this world. The lesser ones uh, were concerned with only the perverted pleasures of the moment so that they had become radically existentialist and sensation prevailed to the point that on the Roman stage finally they had to heighten sensation by having actual murders committed on stage with condemned men playing the roles and being murdered actual sex, actual everything on stage well we go part way <clears throat> we have actual sex mm -hmm. I'm sure that if the present trends continue uh, it'll become even more explicit <clears throat> in time to come. They don't believe the uh, audience has enough imagination to imagine, so therefore they leave nothing to the imagination. And of course this kills all the imaginative quality involved in the drama. It, there, and also there is no catharsis. So here we are. We, we see the dreadful end of so many of these exponents of nothingness and I believe that's the title of his book of nothingness being and nothingness. being and nothingness yes he was an expert on nothingness and it's amazing that he has managed to be so hailed so many of these people get away with this and that nobody laughs mm -hmm. yes well our time is almost up I'd like to uh, 
comment briefly on one thing, the existentialism within the church. The emphasis is so much on uh, not what will the Lord have us to do, but what is my or your personal experience. I actually had one outstanding, prominent pastor tell me that he did not believe that John Calvin was a Christian because in all his works he never found him make a witness about his conversion experience and uh, the ever-increasing joy of that experience and rhapsodizing about the experience. That was the test. And he went after others similarly. Well, our time is up. Thank you all, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ. Rules. Dot com.